Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Antinomian Audiobooks podcast. Today I'll continue reading from Spaciousness, the radical Zog Chen of the Vajra Heart, Long Chenpa's Precious Treasury of the Dharma Tatu, translation and commentary by Keith Dalman. Canto 10, Vision. Introductory. Some will consider this 10th canto on vision to be the heart of Longchenpa's treatise. Certainly, if any of the 13 cantos could be considered a statement of method, it is this one. It may be argued that no method is to be pursued in the Vajra heart except recognition of what is already present. Ati yoga, surely, is a method of simply pointing out ineluctable reality, a conceptual introduction to what is non-conceptual and beyond the intellect to comprehend. That is precisely what this treasury of the Dharmadhatu does. It, quote, points out and it, quote, introduces. But in this canto, we are urged to retain the vision of mind's nature. And since retention implies extension in time, that surely is an ongoing activity, a practice. In the last verse of the canto, in which Longchenpa moderates his style to introduce an avuncular tone, to give personal advice to his students, he confirms that nothing is to be done in Ati Yoga other than to keep the vision, keep the faith. He does not qualify that statement with the sophistic assertion that maintaining the vision is nothing but relaxing into the space of non-action, but he might have done. In the same verse at the end of the canto, Langchanpa stresses that this guru vision of reality is the outcome of the resolution of cause and effect, of causality, and the affectivity of secondary conditions. That assertion may tempt some people to exert themselves in undermining the space-time assumptions that inform our thinking, belief systems, and language. Our linguistic structure itself surely describes a dualistic delusion in which the creativity of luminous mind has become crystallized as the adornment that we know as the animate and inanimate universe, although this may not be true of the structure of all languages. How can we recognize the creativity of mind as its own luminous essence if we have not excised the kind of thinking that links the past with the present and the present with the future and in the present envisages the universe in terms of the four cardinal and the eight intermediate directions, top and bottom existing in a temporal continuum. 
Surely, reality is a non-dual spaciousness where center and circumference are identical. The answer to this lies in the proposition Longchenpa articulated in the previous canto, that the resolution of every dualism occurs naturally and spontaneously because it is the natural function of mind. This assertion is repeated in the 11th canto treating release. In the resolution of duality, the vision is naturally and spontaneously displayed. Thus, again, although Longchenpa employs the word method to describe the resolution into guru vision, is this notion appropriate? In the penultimate line of the final stanza of this 10th canto, a stanza containing what are known as core secret precepts, Longchenpa evokes the notion of the excluded middle. Aristotle, a Greek, first formulated the law of excluded middle. He maintained therein that in response to any proposition, it is necessary to either affirm or deny that irrefutable logic disallowed any middle response that neither affirmed nor denied. Thus, for example, the proposition that life is suffering must receive a veritable yea or nay, and any response such as Nagarjuna's fourfold negation, not yea, not nay, neither both yea and nay, nor neither yea nor nay, was illogical and unacceptable. Nagarjuna's fourfold negation, of course, presents the logical case for the excluded middle. Here, spaciousness may be existentially experienced. So the excluded middle is what in Dzogchen we may term the ineffable reality of the here and now, in its emptiness, clarity, and compassion. This guru vision is direct perception of the here and now, and is therefore a non-dual vision and cannot be described in dualistic terms. It is crucial that we do not consider that this vision is a preview of what we intend to attain in the future when we have accumulated the merit, purified our karma, done the necessary preliminaries, and so on. The vision is valid only in the here and now and only for the timeless moment of its experience. In order to fulfill this guru vision, the view and the meditation must remain integrated. It may appear at first that the view is a series of highly abstract intellectual statements describing a hypothetical reality, but soon those statements become immediately actualized precepts. The precepts are actualized as non-meditation. The view provides doorways into experiential Dzogchen, and that is non-meditation. 
the great temptation is to turn non-meditation into a discipline on a progressive path, in which case view and meditation remain asunder. Confidence derived from initiatory experience is imperative at this moment, and the support of a Rigzin Lama is crucial. If we can retain confidence in the view, then we rest in meditation, and view and meditation are non-meditation. If we lose confidence in the view, then we are stuck with shamatha and vipassana meditations on the gradual path of Tibetan cultural learning. We may find it surprising then that Longchenpa's auto-commentary on this, the 10th canto, the most extensive and detailed of all, elaborates the precepts that are crucial in Ati Yoga, in Trekcho and Togal. We know that these precepts are crucial to discovering the non-meditation that is the key to Maha Ati, but still Longchenpa's auto-commentary leaves a taste of the progressive method. The first set of precepts is called the Four Modes of Freely Resting. The second is called the Three Aspects of Contemplation. And the third is called the 22 Topics. What are these 29 topics that Longchenpa lists in his commentary? They may be considered as 29 conceptual keys to non-conceptual experience. In a certain way, they are paradoxes that in their resolution produce a transcendent response. Perhaps sometimes that response could be called non-dual, and in that they are very similar to the Rinzai Zen cones. But these Dzogchen precepts are to be resolved in simply setting, sitting, excuse me, by a natural relaxation into the nature of mind and not by any arduous process of sadhana. The assumption here is that the concept itself, implicit in the precept, is congruent with the experience and that the nature of the experience is the underlying all-pervasive experience of the spaciousness that is present in the natural state of being. If indeed this vision of Dzogchen describes the intrinsic reality of all our lives, then the concept of it becomes a doorway into its realization. The freely resting precepts demonstrate a paradigm of ati-yoga method. If we take mountain as an example, we are not exhorted to do anything with this mountain, not to visualize it outside or inside, not to identify our minds with it, not to cultivate its qualities of immobility, solidity, immutability, and so on, nor even to enumerate its qualities. 
recognition is the keyword, and that is not to be considered an action under this Ati Yoga rubric. Rather, it is non-action. Then consider another of the freely resting precepts, ocean, a concept representing the eternal sea. Simply by allowing the notion ocean to arise in the mind, we dwell in the ocean and are engulfed by the ocean, and the symbolic value of the ocean evokes its clarity, unity, stillness, and vastness. In recognition, we know the spaciousness of luminous mind. Again, no action is to be performed here, no contrivance or fabrication, but rather we are recognizing the nature of mind that has existed prior to our perception and what is called the natural state of being. Further, ocean as a symbol may also evoke a cresting wave like Hokusai's great wave, where the foam of the ocean appears to have strayed from the ocean itself, the separation belied by the certain knowledge that it will fall back into the ocean in the next moment. Just as that Japanese painting first evokes samsara in all its threatening alienation, and then in the next instant provides the comforting, calming knowledge that the boat and its occupants will survive. So knowing oneself as the ocean may first evoke samsara and then nirvana within it and bring that gratuitous consummation in non-duality. The stanza in the root text, the third stanza, to which this freely resting example is attached, stresses the ocean's stillness and pellucidity. That indicates a state of mind where no alternation between the mental projection of an image or object and that image's collapse can be. Externally, that identity occurs in the process of rising and falling of sensory imagery and internally in the process of elaboration of perception into streams of thought and its dissolution. Or are these processes better described as timeless pulsations of mind? The commentary focuses upon the experience of a still ocean with the reflections of the planets and stars shining within it, giving it much the same significance as the reflection of the moon in water, which is one of the eight classical analogies of reality. After this analysis of the modes of freely resting, it must be stressed that no state exists to be achieved. Thinking that Dzogchen is a state to be realized immediately reifies Dzogchen and emphasizes the duality that is to be resolved. So any thought that pure presence is a state like elation or depression or certainty or doubt 
is to be experientially deconstructed at the moment of its arising, just like every discursive thought, any belief that arises. If pure presence were a definable state, there would be a cause and conditions that affected that state, and there would be an effect that was caused subsequently by that state. If pure presence was caused by certain conditions, then the formalization of those conditions as technique would allow us to practice it in a process on a path that led to the destination, the goal, which would be a fixed state. That state would appear to, quote, truly exist in space-time, but since it would be a product of causality, it would be composite and therefore impermanent and a part of conditioned existence, which is another name for samsara. In the samsaric realm where zealous ambition is required to attain any worthwhile goal, shades of jealousy and rivalry inevitably transpire even in the most purified minds, because goal orientation accompanied by ambition is generally attended by contention. Constant concern with the stage of the path and the degree of attainment would upset the mind, and finally, the state cannot be attained due to concern whether or not it had been attained. Longchenpa is adamant that there is no state of mind to be achieved. To allow the concept of the state on the grounds that it is the state of non-dual cognition in contradistinction to the dualistic state of perception is to overindulge the intellect. It is as if the intellect were just waiting for the pronouncement of a state in order to reify it and then to grasp it, to cling to it, to defend and justify itself through it. The thought and concept then either precede or supersede the actual experience. If the concept precedes it, then it is the penetration of the thought by primal awareness from within that allows the experience. If the concept was subsequent to the experience, then dualistic perception has already muddied the waters. Just by thinking, this is it, this is the state, then we have lost it, because the state cannot be objectified and reduced to a mere label. If we add insult to injury and to our eureka pronouncement, add an intention to remain in that state, thinking, how can I remain in this state, and we manage to fixate the state and sustain it, then what is stabilized is a trance state. As often quoted, a trance state is the meditation of the gods, or perhaps a samadhi of the Hindu rishis, or a fixation of the Buddhist meditator who has gone astray. 
the natural state of authentic being, which is the situation when we rest doing nothing, abandoning nothing, nor adopting nothing, has no witness and therefore cannot be established or recollected. The self-sprung awareness that is the reality of that moment has no attributes or characteristics. So how can it be called a state? And who is there to verify the nature of that state? Who is the witness? Is it possible that someone on the outside can actually verify another person's state of mind? It may be possible to confirm the probability of someone else's insistent report of an ineffable state but such a report can describe only its passing, like the tail of a comet that provides evidence of the invisible body that preceded it. The Dzogchen adept can never provide evidence of his non-dual awareness. For that reason alone, he may be anonymous. <clears throat> It must be stressed and reiterated that in the vision there can never be any distraction, obstacle, or error. What we call a distraction from a particular object of focus is defined by reference to a predetermined fixation, while in the vision the distraction has already become the subject of non-meditation. Likewise, although in Vajrayana, obstacles and obscurations may be taken as the path, in this Dzogchen vision, no limiting notions such as obstacles and obscurations can arise. There are no goals and no preconceived causal functions, so whatever occurs, perfect as it is, is the vast spaciousness of the now. There can be no error in reality. Everything that arises in the vision of reality is perceived immediately as perfect in itself and known as a field of sameness wherein nothing has any greater virtue than anything else. Furthermore, there can be no error because there is no one to define right and wrong and no one to set a bias that prefers one thing to another. There is no error because error in itself is the nature of mind, a vast matrix of spaciousness. There is no error because relative and absolute truth are one reality. Every moment of our consciousness in the here and now demonstrates that. Only when the intellect in its mode of dualistic perception separates absolute from relative can the notion of an ideal state of consciousness distinct from the present moment arise. And there is the crux of the delusion of samsara. The thought that something achievable exists, a goal exists to be won, out there or in here, a state superior to what we have in the now, necessarily exacerbates the pain and sadness that originally motivated such a thought.
the dissatisfaction that motivates desire for improvement carries within it an endless cycle of dissatisfaction. Caught in that eternal loop, we suffer the cyclic round of samsara, rebirth, and delusion. At the inception of every thought, before it is apprehended, is the clarity and emptiness of the Dharma Kaya, the spaciousness of mind's nature, and therein no error or mistake can be made. Finally, in this 10th chapter, Treating Vision, here is a digression upon the notion of reincarnation. For the Dzogchen adept in the instantaneous process of disillusionment that is every timeless slice of the here and now, the notion of rebirth, like all beliefs, must be existentially deconstructed. Like each sensory perception, inner or outer, like every thought as it arises, the notion of reincarnation is to be unraveled and spread out so that it is understood as its reality constituent spaciousness. As such, we know it as sameness, the same spaciousness as all thought and indeed all perception. In that knowing, we relieve ourselves of attachment to particular thought forms and attain the faculty to utilize all beliefs according to people's needs. It may offend some Buddhists, but our attachment to all particular thought forms is to be released, and that includes the notion of rebirth. The notion of rebirth is apparently as deeply entrenched in the Indian subcontinent as the concept of heaven and hell must have been in medieval Europe. In the 6th century BC, at the time of Sakyamuni Buddha, transmigration after death was almost certainly universally accepted. We may assume that because the notion of rebirth was a basic, unquestioned assumption about existence, to doubt it was to throw oneself into social and religious disrepute. Rather than argue the case in his popular preaching, Sakyamuni preferred not to address the issue, and for that reason it is not treated in the exoteric sermons that were later to be enshrined in the canonical sutras. If we follow the Eightfold Path in this lifetime, whatever happens after death will take care of itself in the best possible way, was his teaching. If we replace follow the Eightfold Path with relax into the nature of mind, this is very much the attitude of Dzogchen. Rebirth is just another obdurate belief, like belief in the flat earth, like the belief in a substantial, weighty soul, like belief in the superiority of the white race, like belief that the sun encircles the earth, like belief in the Big Bang at the beginning of time, like belief 
in the internal combustion engine and like belief in contemporary aerodynamics. Just as it is extremely injudicious, however, to assert absolutely the absence of causality when in the next moment samsara may clamp down and ignorance of the law of cause and effect place us in a perilous pass, the lower realm abyss yawning open beneath us, or perhaps when in a flash of insight we see that samsara is indisputably the creativity of luminous mind, so it is foolish to deny adamantly the possibility of rebirth. The continuity of space-time in this life, after all, does appear to be broken occasionally by a metaphysical death and subsequent rebirth. As the Dzogchen instruction in the Bardos, the intermediate states implies. We can only say that in the light of the non-dual matrix of the here and now, there can be no rebirth, although in the unpredictable and variable emanations of space-time, anything and everything is possible. Canto 10 Vision Guru vision is identical to true reality Luminous mind with its alpha pure nature the invariable reality that has nothing to expunge or espouse, a sky-like matrix, a reality that cannot be sought and found, shines as stellar light simply as we rest in its nature. The sensory fields do not crystallize here. Mind is not reified and unmoving from essential spontaneity, we arrive at the guru vision of the all-good vast expanse. Crystal clear space, free of alteration and pulsation, like a still unsullied translucent ocean, in the simple clear reality of self-sprung awareness in the now, we rest free of fluctuating hope and fear. In a pre-verbal space where there are no habitual compulsions, naturally disposed, unfeigned, uncontrived, and unalloyed, yes, absorbed by the matrix into the reality that has no attribute, neither meditation nor anything to meditate upon can be. Bipolarity, set free, becomes the self-sprung reality vision. All basic thought patterns are the creativity of pure presence. So renounced they may be, but they cannot be eliminated. In their reality, no differentiation or exclusion, 
no distinction can exist. So may be present, but they cannot be definitively established, and their true reality is known simply as their spaciousness. Without rejecting samsara, we see it as self-sprung awareness in the now, envisioned through pure authenticity as the creativity of the supermatrix. In the now, sensory appearances and mind fall together as reality, where still contemplation occurs in an uninterrupted flow. This is the Vajra peak, the supreme all-good Buddha mind, the most sublime spacious event as high as the sky. Without differentiation or exclusion, the supreme meditation invests the now, the marvelous Lord that is spontaneity. In the now, empowering clear light is a continuum, a spontaneity wherein nothing is expunged or espoused. This is the supreme vision of samsara and nirvana as spaciousness. This sky-like supermatrix itself, unmoving and ineffable in the now, is the natural disposition of all beings. Seeing appearances as other than oneself is mental delusion. Belief in meditation and endeavor is mental delusion. The true reality of delusion is a field of sameness, a state of rest, but in that matrix that is unmoving and alpha pure, there can be no action or endeavor, no resting nor non-resting. Looking at the reality that is unchanging spontaneity, with its intrinsic presence that is free of intellectual interference, looking again and again, we see nothing. Non-seeing is the empowering view of pure presence. In the undiscriminating pure presence that cannot be cultivated, pursuing meditation, we see nothing exists to meditate upon. Non-meditation is the empowering meditation of pure presence. In the non-dual way of being that is free of discrimination, in disciplined conduct, we see nothing exists to practice. Non-discipline is the empowering conduct of pure presence. Secure in the now, in the spontaneity free of hope and fear, in repetitive accomplishment, we see no accomplishment. Non-accomplishment is the empowering accomplishment of pure presence. In sameness, objects are not conceptualized, nor is mind reified. So fluctuating hope and fear subside. Living in the space where object and mind are identical, Reality never moves out of the matrix. Nothing is objectified in the field of attributes, and so thereby we are empowered. In the now, 
through its non-dual empowering awareness, the great perfection, inseparable samsara and nirvana, without any giving or taking, is an all-pervasive smoothness. Matter and spirit are the same in intrinsic spaciousness, and Buddha and sentient beings are the same in intrinsic spaciousness, and absolute and relative are the same in intrinsic spaciousness, and sin and virtue are the same in intrinsic spaciousness and the ten directions are all the same in intrinsic spaciousness. Consequently, everything arising as self-sprung display, at its inception, all the same, nothing ever better or worse. What is the use of positive or negative antidotes? In, all, in their abiding, all things are the same, nothing ever better or worse. So let whatever arises in the mind subside into itself right now. In their release, all things are the same, nothing ever better or worse. So in the aftermath, why make any judgments? Everything arising as luminous mind in the ground of being arising as creativity or display. It is all indeterminate, arising equally undetermined in the original matrix of the now, though it may seem to arise unambiguously. Everything arises as the sameness of intrinsic spaciousness. Again, everything existing the same at rest in reality, Though dissimilarity may appear to exist, everything abides in the sameness of intrinsic spaciousness, and again, released, self-sprung in the matrix of primal awareness. Even though it may not appear to be released, it is actually released in the total sameness of spaciousness. In self-sprung presence, everything the same in the now, arising or non-arising, everything is always absent in intrinsic spaciousness, abiding or non-abiding, everything is always absent in intrinsic spaciousness, released or unreleased, everything is always absent in intrinsic spaciousness. In the pure presence of immutable sameness, at inception, spontaneously arising, everything is known in its intrinsic state. As it abides, spontaneously abiding, everything is known in its intrinsic state. And at dissolution, spontaneously dissolving, everything is known in its intrinsic state. In pure presence, unchanging and unelaborated, everything arising arises in the now. Everything abiding abides in the now. Everything dissolving is released in the now, and its nature is like the sky. 
Coincident, arising, abiding, and release is an uninterrupted flow. No break in the arising and dissolving is possible. In an unbroken stream, cause and effect are inseparable, and because causality is inoperable, the abyss of samsara is crossed, and if the abyss is traversed, downfall is avoided. The matrix of Samanta Bhadra is the unvarying now. The matrix of Vajra Sattva is incapable of alteration or sublimation. Simple recognition of the nature of being is labeled Buddha. With that realization, nothing to adopt or abandon, everything is smoothed into its unique reality. On the Isle of Gold, all things must be gold. Where there are no parameters, no limitations, deviation is impossible and veils are transparent. So in luminous mind, no downfall possible. The three dimensions are spontaneously, effortlessly, complete, and the phrase unimaginable and inexpressible, a mere figure of speech. Sensory appearances undone, pure presence self-sprung shines out and unveiled without inside or outside. Appearances are transparent. In genuine, natural disposition, everything shines in supreme reality. Relaxing our body-mind in satisfaction, hanging loose like someone who has nothing to lose, neither tense nor slack, the body-mind rests comfortably. No matter how we feel, we abide in the nature of mind. No matter how we live, we stay in the nature of mind. No matter how we move, we move in the nature of mind. In luminous spaciousness, coming and going are impossible. No movement in the victor's dimension. Whatever we say reverberates as mind's nature. Whatever is expressed is articulated as mind's nature. In luminous mind, no verbal expression manifests, for the speech of the victors is ineffable. Whatever ideas emerge are thought as the nature of mind. Whatever concepts emerge are conceived as the nature of mind. In luminous mind, ideas and concepts never truly exist, for the mind of the victors is a thoughtless mind. Absence occurring as anything at all is the nirmana kaya. Enjoyment in the nature of mind is the samboga kaya. The absence of any substantial ground therein is the dharma kaya. The three dimensions as fruition comprise the spontaneity matrix.
In the spacious supermatrix of luminous mind, no discursive thought arises. If the ordinary mind is untrammeled by signs of perception, that is the vision of holistic Buddha. Luminosity, in essence like the spacious vault of the sky, without thought or concept, is the supreme meditation. Luminosity, in essence like the spacious vault of the sky, without thought or concept, is the supreme meditation. Nothing but our own nature, unmoving and uncontrived, without mentation, nothing at all generated in the mind. That is reality, naturally disposed, nothing changing in time, the supreme meditation where the movement of thought ceases. Whatever rests in that intrinsic nature is sacred, fearless mind. It is holistic Buddha, free of all attributes. It is unmoving spaciousness that equalizes all reifying concepts. It is the victor's vision matrix, the supreme expanse of our being. Abandoning the chains of fabricated body-mind in unfeigned relaxation, regardless of any stirring thought forms, when we abide in the ground of being and stay in that reality, everything is the vast, all-good vision matrix. Free of the stress of compulsive give and take, we are uninhibited, naturally disposed in our very being. The matrix without parameters is a still, all-pervasive smoothness, and all thought forms subsiding by themselves into themselves, that is Vajrasattva's sky-like vision. If we are undistracted from the authentic matrix of luminous mind, though we engage with the mental field, that is also reality. But if that reality is unadulterated by any compulsiveness, excuse me, but if that reality is adulterated by any compulsiveness, Although the matrix is thought-free and spacious like the sky, we are caught in a cage of reified concepts. We may meditate continuously in that way, but it is mere trance. And trance, said Sakyamuni, is similar to the meditation of the gods. So it is crucial that mind is undistracted and without motivation, remaining in its natural disposition, transcending goal orientation. Since self-sprung awareness in the now is zero-dimensional, no thing or goal or ideal is ever indicated therein for all mental elaboration has naturally collapsed. Intellectual stratagems and rational agendas have been abandoned, and we familiarize ourselves with the sublime, groundless expanse. 
The one holistic reality is self-sprung awareness in the now. The one holistic view is free of discursive opinions. The one holistic meditation neither lacks nor wants nothing. The one holistic conduct comprises non-dual giving and taking. The one holistic fruition detests moral preference. That is the self-sprung guru vision of spontaneity. The universe, material and spiritual, samsara and nirvana, all experience whatsoever is reality from the first, since it cannot stray from self-sprung awareness itself, all experience is disposed as the ground of being. That is guru vision. Regarding reality, appearing as a multifarious field without worrying about any perceptual disposition, simply rest in naturally disposed, non-pulsating mind, and we stay naturally in the reality that is the matrix of sameness. Regarding the forms of sensory appearance in a field of duality, by neither focusing the senses nor letting the gaze wander, free of a sense of self or an idea of other, we allow natural clarity to shine in vast, smoothed-out openness. In the vision of all identical, self-sprung awareness in the now, where free of pulsation, mind is expanded and heightened, experiencing integral space free of outside, inside, and in between, blissful, clear contemplation, free of discursive elaboration, arises. Regarding the vision of reality on moving in the quiescent ground, no outside, no inside exists, no elaboration of perceptual duality. And since there is no mind that fixates objects as other, nothing exists to get hold of and no attachment to perception and nowhere in samsara to take rebirth, there is only the sky. When the mind is not conceived as oneself within, there is nothing to grasp and nothing to become attached, and all habitual assumptions about conditioned existence subside, and the person to be reborn in samsara vanishes. At this point, where outer and inner are both like the sky, delusive experience cannot be conceived or imagined, and we have arrived at the Dharmakaya vision. Touching final resolution, coming and going now barred, we reach the supreme citadel of the Dharmakaya, the pure fields of the all-good, the all-saturating matrix. If pure presence of the now does not stray from the ground of being, 
Familiarization with it precludes strengthened conditioned existence, and the karma and habit that perpetuate rebirth run dry. Causality resolved, we say that samsara and nirvana are identical, and being in neither conditioned existence nor peaceful cessation, we have arrived at the luminous heart core that is definitely not a state of one-pointed calm abiding. It is the vision of natural great perfection. When we vacillate, losing the essential grounded space, the intellectual mind at work becomes samsara itself, involving causal concatenation that precludes resolution, and inevitably we fall lower and lower. The supreme secret the great perfection, on the other hand, never strays from intrinsic spaciousness, and the forms of its creativity naturally dissolve into their source. This vision is the vision of immutable sameness. In this vision, goal-directed endeavor is impossible, so the view, for example, cannot be cultivated. Yet, out of this space where center and circumference are unified, creativity projects its display into another dimension, where it appears as the multifarious variety of the universe. Never say categorically that ca cause and effect do not exist. The complexity that arises from interdependence is incalculable. The states of samsaric delusion and nirvanic joy are incalculable. A mass of causes and conditions constitutes a sublime synchronicity. Sorry. When we identify our authentic nature, nothing can be said about it. Likewise, taking authenticity as the path, wholly committed, knowing it only in moments of unimaged, non-conceptual vision, consumed by it, we are completely, transparently naked. In this supermatrix, Afflictive emotion, karma, and habit create apparitional games of magical illusion. To be free of that, please, we resolve causality. Our method is supreme. Never, never stray from the vision of reality and cherish the excluded middle. That is the crux of my heartfelt advice. So I hope you enjoyed this reading of Canto 10 of Spaciousness, the Radical Dzogchen of the Vajra Heart, Longchenpa's Precious Treasury of the Dharmadatu, translation and commentary by Keith Dowman. Soon I will read to you Canto 11, 
purity. That'll be the next podcast. And if you're interested in a little bit more controversial literature, please find Antinomian Audiobooks channel on BitChute. Have a nice evening. Namaste.